Full Scope, Human Longevity and Performance Podcast. We want you to become the most exceptional, high-performing version of yourself. And to facilitate this, we are giving away the Longevity Fundamentals Handbook absolutely free. This is a tremendous resource that will tell you the lifestyle behaviors and mindset that will lead to the best outcomes and longevity. To get this, go to our website, wondermedicine.com or fullscope.org, put in your email, and we will send you this amazing resource, the Longevity Fundamentals Handbook. Radon is a radioactive element that accumulates in homes and buildings. It is the second leading cause of lung cancer and lung cancer death worldwide. Smoking, of course, being number one. Radon is colorless, odorless, and tasteless. And as a result, if we don't test for it, we would never know it was even there. Thankfully, we have proven strategies to mitigate radon, meaning get rid of it in our homes. And so if we test for it and know it's there, we can get rid of it. And with that, get rid of the risk of lung cancer and lung cancer death due to radon. Today on Full Scope, we're going to talk about the largest contributor to an individual's background radiation on Earth, and that is radon. Radon is chemical element number 86 on the periodic table. It's abbreviated RN. It's radioactive, and it's a colorless, odorless, and tasteless gas under standard conditions. And remember, in chemistry, standard conditions are 0 degrees Celsius and 101 kilopascal, which is a pressure about equal to one atmosphere. Radon is in periodic column 18. It's all the way to the far right of the periodic table and is part of a group of elements known as noble gases. These elements have very low chemical reactivity and they tend to not form bonds with other elements and other chemicals. Radon is a monoatomic gas. That means it floats around as a gas as a single atom and it's eight times denser than the rest of Earth's atmosphere. It's produced as an intermediate step in the radioactive decay of uranium and and thorium into stable isotopes of lead. So while radon has very low chemical reactivity, its nucleus is inherently unstable. And as such, it undergoes alpha decay or gives off an alpha particle in order to abstain more stability, thereby becoming a new element and potentially causing harm to humans and other life forms in proximity to that radiation. Radon has no stable isotopes. And remember, an isotope is two or more types of atoms with the same atomic number. So basically, they have the same number of protons but different numbers of neutrons. And a simple example of that is helium, which has two protons and often has two neutrons, which is also an alpha particle, which we're about to talk about. But there's also other isotopes of helium, like helium-3, found in fairly high quantities on the moon, and that only has one neutron. The most common 
isotope of radon is radon-222. It's produced from the alpha decay of radium, an element that is two atomic numbers higher than radon. And there's actually a good amount, or not a good amount, but there's, there's about one gram of radium per square mile of soil to a depth of, depth of six inches on Earth. And so as radium decays, it produces radon, which then seeps up as a gas through the, the soil, dirt, water, into the Earth's atmosphere. The most stable isotope, as we said, is radon-222, and it is produced from the radioactive decay pathway of uranium. And it only has a half-life of about 3.8 days. That means if you take radon-222 and you wait 3.8 days, about half of that radon will be gone. It will have decayed into another chemical element. There are many other isotopes of radon as well. In fact, there's been 39 identified. And these numbers can range from radon-193 to radon-231. And most have half-lives in seconds. So when we talk about radioactive half-lives, it's pretty amazing because you've got certain radioactive materials that have half-lives of fractions of seconds. And then you've got other radioactive materials that have half-lives of billions of years. And so pretty crazy. But uh, perhaps the second most abundant type of radon, radon-220, is produced from the radioactive, radioactive decay pathway of thorium to stable lead. And it's got a half-life of only 55 seconds. And so while radon-220 is produced in about the same quantity as radon-222, because the half-life is only 55 seconds versus 3.8 days, it's going to be much, much, much more rare to isolate radon-220. We need to talk a lot more about radioactivity in order to make these points clear and grow your understanding of radon as a health risk. But before that, I want to talk about a really fascinating story. So, before 1984, radon was thought to be a risk only in uranium mines, where it's known to accumulate into high concentrations. That year, being 1984, an engineer, Stanley Watrous, was starting a new job at Limerick Nuclear Power Plant in Pottstown, Pennsylvania. Prior to nuclear fluid fuel being added to the plant, meaning that they hadn't put any nuclear material in the plant, Watrous began setting off radioactive detectors meant to keep workers safe. For several days, he was completely decontaminated, only to return home to work from home the next day to again be totally radioactive. As a result of this, a search was underwent into Watrous's life and eventually made it to his home, where a huge amount of radiation was found. In fact, 2,700 picocuries per liter. The source of this radiation was eventually determined to be radon. And this amount of radon in Mr. Stanley Watrous's home was equivalent in lung cancer risk to smoking hundreds of packs of cigarettes a day. 
So his family was being exposed to huge amounts of radioactive radon. As a result, Watrous' family was immediately moved out, and the EPA basically made his house into a testing center where they tried to figure out what was going on and how they could potentially lower the amounts of radon in the home. After they found out with acceptable ways and got the radon level down, Watrous was eventually able to move back into the house with his family. And because of this entire event, humans realized that radon can be dangerous in our homes and buildings. Before 1984, we were, we were oblivious to this, to this potential harm. And it just goes to show you that in life, there's probably a lot of other harms or could be a lot of other harms that we're not even aware of, aren't even on our radar. Pretty fascinating, crazy stuff. All right, let's get back to some dense talk about radiation. And in particular, I want to talk about alpha particles quite a bit because that is the type of radiation that radon is actually giving off and is causing harm in lung cancer in humans. As stated, radon releases high energy alpha particles. This is alpha this is ionizing radiation, meaning it has sufficient energy to disrupt electrons and other atoms that it that it runs into. And alpha particles are essentially helium atoms. They've got two protons and two neutrons. What happens is they bump into cellular components and produce the displaced electrons and produce free radicals like hydroxide, which can damage cellular components in DNA, leading to increased rates of illness and cancer. This alpha radiation or alpha decay is essentially a nuclear fission reaction. And nuclear fission is talking about breaking up a nucleus. These alpha particles have a tremendous amount of energy and move at very fast speeds. In fact, one alpha particle has five mega electron volts. And a mega electron volt is equal to one million electron volts. And electron volts are a unit of energy uh, of a single particle in a particle accelerator. So it's really a measure of energy uh, of one very high energy particle. And these alpha alpha particles or helium atoms are traveling at tremendous speed. We're talking 15 million meters per second, which is approximately 5% of the speed of light. So they have a lot of energy and a lot of speed. But when these larger radiation particles, and I'm just saying large because relative to other types of radiation, they are extremely large, lose energy quickly when they contact any material. So even a few centimeters of air, a piece of paper, or for instance, the outer layer of our skin, the stratum corneum, which is basically the outermost dead layer of skin of keratinocytes or skin cells in the epidermis, are of sufficient distance and, and mass to block alpha particles. And, and they don't essentially block them. What they do is they absorb the energy and then the, the particle is no longer traveling and able to hit other stuff. And so alpha particles have what is called a very short 
mean free path. And in physics, a mean free path is the average distance of moving particle substantially changes in direction and energy. So it doesn't take very long for an alpha particle with an extreme amount of energy and speed to basically lose all of its energy and all of its speed. And as a result of that, it basically hits things quick and gives off a lot of energy and then stops. So the good part is if you're exposed to alpha radiation and it just hits you in the skin, you're essentially not going to be at risk. It's going to give off that energy to your dead keratinocytes, which are then going to flake off and it's not going to be a big issue for you. But if you ingest alpha radiation, if you inhale alpha radiation, or if you inject alpha radiation, and by that I mean radioactive material that gives off alpha radiation, it can cause problems. And it's got sufficient energy to damage cellular components as well as DNA. And because it's got this uh, short free mean path and gives off a lot of energy really quick, it tends to cause double standard breaks in DNA, which, uh, as as you know if you've looked at DNA, a double standard break tends to be tends to predispose a, a DNA to mutations because when the cell tries to repair the double-stranded DNA break, the, the cellular components that do that are more likely to make a mistake and substitute a different base pair than should, be, than should have been added because of that break. Um, another way to talk about this is linear energy transfer. And alpha particles have a very high linear energy transfer, or LET. And this is the amount of energy an ionizing particle transfers to a material per unit distance. And so because the distance is short and the energy is high, the LET, or linear energy transfer of an alpha particle, is going to be quite high. And so, again, alpha particles are not dangerous if they hit us in the skin because that energy is absorbed by dead keratinocytes that then flake off. It doesn't cause mutations or health problems. But if we ingest it, if we inhale it, or if we inject it under the skin, and again, I'm talking about radioactive material that gives off alpha particles, that is when you can cause health problems and other issues. Interestingly, 99% of helium on Earth is produced by alpha decay of uranium and thorium. And, uh, you know, that uranium decay pathway is where radon essentially comes from on Earth. Alright, let's break up the radiation talk with a little morbidity and mortality. What's up, Full Scope listeners? If you are enjoying this content, if this content is bringing you value, please share it with your friends, loved ones, and everyone else. Post it online, on social media. Let your friends know. Have them subscribe. Put the word out there. That's all we really ask. And at the very least, give us a review and rate the podcast. Thanks so much. Let's get back to the show. First of all, radon is often the largest contributor to an individual's background radiation dose on Earth. It's considered the leading environmental cause of cancer mortality worldwide. So this is a huge deal. It's our biggest source of radiation, and it's causing more cancers than any other environmental source. 
Worldwide, between 3 and 14% of lung cancers are thought to be due to radon in any given country, depending on the prevalence of tobacco smoking and the background radon level. So as we'll talk about, some geographical areas tend to give off lots of radon, and those countries are going to be at more risk. And some countries tend to have higher or lower prevalences of tobacco smoking, which is the leading cause of lung cancer worldwide. And so based on those two factors, how many people smoke and how much radon the soil just naturally gives off, any given country might have 3 to 14% of its lung cancers attributable to radon. Wow, that's a lot for something many of us don't even really think about, that being radon. In the United States, approximately 21,000 lung cancer deaths are attributed to radon every year. 21,000. So this is a huge deal. There's a huge burden of disease. And as we'll talk about soon, it is an entirely preventable burden of disease. Now, back to radiology. Sorry, I mean back to radioactivity. There are two different units that we're going to talk about today that are used to measure radioactivity. The Becquerel, which is the SI-derived unit of radioactivity. It's used by most everyone worldwide. And then the Curie, which is a non-SI unit of radioactivity used mostly by the United States. Of course, in the United States, we always have to do something slightly different. And of course, that makes it a lot harder on all of our scientists because they end up having to use two different, two different systems, SI, and then the other ones used by the United States. One Becquerel is defined as the activity of a quantity of radioactive material when one nucleus decays per second. So that means if you put a meter next to something and want to measure radioactivity, you've got a pile of radioactive material. If, it, if one nucleus decays every second, then it's going to be equal to one Becquerel. Um, we measure Becquerels usually uh, according to a cubic meter of, uh, of a gas or, or whatever material. And so usually we're talking about Becquerels per meter squared. In the U.S. we usually use picocuries per liter, which is PCI over liter. And one picocurie per liter is equal to about 37 Becquerels per meter squared. And so when you're hearing about people talking about the, the amount of radon, usually they're just talking about the amount of radioactivity in a given space or area. And if they're in, in other parts of the world, besides the U.S., they're going to be talking about Becquerels per meter squared. And if they're in the U.S., they're talking about picocuries per liter. These are measuring the same thing. It's just different units. I know radioactivity is pretty complicated. There is another unit used often in the mining industry. It's called the working level. And oftentimes we use a, a type of or a working level month, which one working level month is the equivalent of spending one year in an area with 230 becquerels per meter squared. But we're really not going to talk much more about working levels. Um, it's just something to be aware of overall. Alright, let's get into what you've all been waiting for, the health effects of radon. 
Radon is considered a carcinogen, meaning it causes cancer by the International Agency for Research on Cancer. It's often the largest contributor to an individual's background radiation dose, and it's the leading environmental cause of cancer mortality worldwide. Now, the leading cause of lung cancer in the world and most every individual country that I know of is smoking tobacco. The second leading cause is radon exposure. And the third leading cause is thought to be secondhand smoke. Radon has been linked to lung cancer in uranium miners as early as the 1950s. And basically, miners that worked between 1940 and 1971 might be eligible for compensation under the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act, or RECA. So if you ever have a patient or even a patient's family that may have suffered lung disease as a result of, of uranium mining, you should look into that program, RECA. There's also a possible link between radon and other cancers like chronic lymphocytic leukemia, though those links have, never, have not yet been definitively proven. Epidemiologists are also currently investigating a potential link between chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and radon exposure, but that research is ongoing. And this research is really tough to do because there are so many factors which can tr contribute to the development of disease and cancer, and it can be really difficult to tease out and often requires a large number of people due to the low overall prevalence of some of these cancers and diseases. As we stated above, radon causes about 21,000 lung cancer deaths every year in the United States. There is a 50% increase in the lung cancer risk for individuals living in homes above the EPA action limit of four picocuries per liter. And so really, we're not talking about huge numbers of people when you think about how many people are actually in the United States, but we are talking about really serious increases in cancer risk with increasing amounts of radon in the home. And I'm gonna kinda go over that in a lot more detail in just a second. But I wanted to say again that according to the World Health Organization, between three and 14% of lung cancers in any given country are thought to be attributable to radon, depending on the amount of radon in that country, as well as the smoking prevalence. Lung cancer risk increased about 16% for every 100 becquerels per meter squared. And remember that that 100 becquerels per meter squared is probably around three picocuries per liter. So a serious increase in risk for each increasing amount of radon in the atmosphere. And, and I want you to think about it kind of like when we talked about asbestos. We talked about how both asbestos and smoking tobacco are risks for lung cancer, but yet those risks are not just additive, they're, they're synergistic, and so they're really uh, combined to make the risk even more than, than the sum of the two parts. And so it can be really bad if you're living in a radon-heavy environment to also be smoking. And so I just want to go over some tables that I found on some uh, United States, uh, I think it was on the EPA's website, about the number of people who will get lung cancer per thousand people 
um, that are exposed to radon at a certain level. And these are never smokers. So if your house that you live in your whole life is exposed to 1.3 picocuries per liter, about two people per those thousand will get lung cancer. If the picocuries per liter is four, which is the action limit, about seven of those thousand people will get lung cancer. If it's eight, 15 of those thousand people will get lung cancer. And if it's 20, 35 of those people will get lung cancer. Now, if you throw smoking into the equation, those numbers go up tremendously. So for 1.3 picocuries per liter in someone who smokes, 20 of those thousand people are going to get lung cancer. At four, the EPA's action limit, 62 per thousand will get lung cancer. Uh, and compare that to just seven in people who don't smoke. At eight picocuries per liter that smoke, 120 will get lung cancer of a thousand. And at 20 picocuries per liter of people who smoke, about 260 per thousand people will get lung cancer. So if you're in a, a radon, a high radon environment, meaning 20 picocuries per liter for your whole life, and you smoke, you've got like a 25 plus percent chance of getting lung cancer. So those are, ex that's extremely high um, when we're, when thinking about like population health data and stuff. So basically to summarize, the link between radon and lung cancer is real. It increases with the amount of radon people are exposed to, and if people smoke, it gives a synergistic effect that makes for a much higher risk of developing lung cancer. Boo ba ba. All right, radon tends to accumulate in buildings. So, what is going on is that radon is essentially everywhere in the Earth's crust. It's in soil, it's in rock, it's in water. And what happens is, as, as uranium and thorium are breaking down, they eventually break down into radium, which then gives off an alpha particle and becomes radon gas. And when that happens, the radon can seep up through the ground, through cracks, through just you know, gaps between dirt and basically kind of just diffuses into the atmosphere. And outside, that's not a big deal. In fact, anywhere you go outside, there's going to be between 5 and 15 uh, becquerels per meter squared, which is 0.1 to 0.5 picocuries per liter. So a small amount outside, not something to necessarily be worried about. But indoors, radon can accumulate it can accumulate to dangerous, dangerous levels. Sometimes up to 10,000 becquerels per meter squared. And we talked about how in um, Stanley Waters' house, the guy who was setting off the, radi the, the radiation detectors of the nuclear planet, power plant was just being exposed to huge amounts of radiation for radon in his home. The other important thing to consider about radon is it's not just the amount of radon or, or radiation that you're exposed to, but the time is so important. If you go visit someone's house with a high radon level and you're only there for an hour, that is not going to be a huge deal in the, the risk calculator for lung cancer. But if you live in a home, if you spend 12 hours of your day in that environment, 
that is going to start to become a real risk after years, months and years of being in that house. So the time component is really, really important. It's not just the concentration, but it's also over time. Crazily, before 1985, as we said, we didn't even know this was a risk factor. We weren't even aware that this was accumulating in homes and was causing a lot of people to have lung cancer. Now, why or how how is the accumulation in buildings affected? Well, there's a lot of different variables, but one is the local geology. So if there's a lot of uranium and thorium in the soil, it's going to be an area that gives off a lot of radon. And some materials, for instance, granite and shale, tend to have high concentrations of uranium. And for that reason, you're going to see a lot of radon in those areas. Radon has to diffuse up from the soil into the atmosphere. And for that reason, it, it depends on things like cracks, holes. Um, in a building, things like drains or porous floors. It has to have ways that it can seep into the building. And so it's coming up from the ground. But interestingly, sometimes even building materials can have uh, you know small amounts of uranium in uranium in them and can essentially give off radon directly into a home or a structure because of that material containing uh, uranium that's decaying the airflow in a building can also be really important so buildings with a lot of of circulation of air, you know, ones that are constantly recycling the air are not going to be allowed to build up a lot of radon because it's just going to be being moved outside. And then the final thing that tends to affect levels of radon in a given home or structure is the time of year. And winter tends to be the worst, and that's for a couple different reasons. For one, in the wintertime we keep our homes and buildings warmer. Warm air is less dense than cold air and less dense areas will pull other other gas and air into them and so essentially a warm home in a in the winter time will be pulling air from underground into it and with that it will pull radon the other reason the winter can have higher levels of radon in the home is because when you have snow and ice covering the ground that essentially will trap radon below it it can't diffuse above it and remember radon's dense so it'll tend to tend to stay closer to the ground and so for that reason it will be more readily diffusing into the house or into a crawl space because that's the only way it can get out from underground because the snow and ice are kind of sealing it in around the house. And then the final reason is that in the wintertime you tend to seal up your house more. So windows are shut, you're not uh, letting as much outside air in, and so air is not circulating as much, and you can tend to get more, more radon in homes. And for instance, in the U.S., the epicenter for radon in homes and building structures is Iowa. Iowa's got the right geology with a good amount of uranium to um, lead to a good amount of radon. And it's also, a, you know, a, a more north, it's a colder climate, and so you're probably going to get particularly high levels of radon in the winter. On top of soil and rock, radon, as we said, also can occur in water. And in ground and spring water, you can sometimes find pretty high levels of radon. And as we said, ingesting radon is another way that you can become vulnerable to the alpha radiation that it gives off. But it's not yet really clear the health effects 
of drinking um, ground or spring water that has higher radon. I'm sure it's not good. I'm sure it causes problems. But we just haven't done enough study to measure how much of an effect it actually has. All right, let's talk a little bit about testing for radon. Really, there's several different ways to do it. You have digital tests that can sometimes continuously monitor radon levels and you can see like a graph throughout several days, months, or even years of, of different radon levels. You've got short-term tests sometimes where you like open a package that contains activated charcoal and you may leave it in the basement for just two days or maybe a, a week or two and then you send it into a lab. And then you've got other tests that are that are longer term that maybe you you, you put it in your basement for several months or even a year and then you can kind of know the average amount of radon over a longer period of time. But in general the EPA endorses 16 different ways to measure radon. The first one is, and really those break down into more like four but with some, a lot of different variants and caveats on it, but you have activated charcoal which absorbs radon and then um, you can measure radon and then radion's decay products in that when you send it to a lab. So essentially you get a packet of sealed activated charcoal often. These are a lot of these radon kits that you might find online for 10 or 15 or maybe 20 bucks. You open the pack, you put it in an area in your basement where people are usually living or an area where you just think radon levels might build up pretty high and people tend to hang out and you just set it there for two days and it kind of absorbs radon you package it up, send it into the lab and you can get a result. Uh, the next way to measure radiation or, or radon is with an alpha track and an alpha track is basically a, P, it's basically a, a material like a hard plastic or something and it, what happens is that the radon that's near it gives off these alpha particles and that alpha particle bumps into this plastic or other material and it causes a track mark so it's basically like as if you could think of it like if you had a wall and you just kept throwing baseballs at a wall and it just kept leaving dents or holes essentially you take that alpha track you leave it in an area for a certain amount of time and then you package it up and send it to the lab and they look at it under the microscope and can see how many uh, alpha particles have hit it and because of that can tell the average concentration of radon and radiation in the air. Another way the EPA uh, recommends using is, uh, is scintillation techniques. Essentially light is given off um, by the passage of alpha particles through material and so scintillation techniques can often measure can often measure the amount of alpha particles being flung out by radon and then the final main group of ways to measure radon are ionization chambers which uh, measure radiation in a gas filled sample there's a lot more to be said about testing and how to test i never did very well in analytical chemistry but uh, just to summarize, a lot of times you have activated charcoal tests or alpha tracks that you kind of sit somewhere where you're trying to measure the radon for a certain amount of time, package it up, send it into a laboratory that then analyzes it. And then you also have these other digital techniques that can kind of measure radon in a more um, continuous fashion and, and get different levels throughout the day and throughout time. And those are going to use things like light given off by alpha radiation traveling through particles or just general radiation measuring in a gas filled sample. So 
you test your house for radon and it is recommended that everyone tests their house for radon and a lot of municipalities even have building codes recommending that commercial buildings be tested for for radon and sometimes uh, codes even mandate that they just build in radon mitigation systems into the into the initial design and build. And I think Iowa, because of its high levels, were some of the first municipalities to start requiring that. But basically in the United States, the, the EPA and, and, and most good doctors and people would recommend that everyone test their home for radon. And if it's above four picocuries per liter, it's recommended to take action. And of course, the higher the level, the more the the more urgent you should consider taking action. And remember, this isn't like this. The the time component is huge. So if you find an elevator radon level, you don't need to move into a hotel because your house has 10 picocuries per liter. You just want to get that taken care of in the next few, you know, weeks or so, so that your family doesn't continue breathing that in for forever. And maybe stay out of those higher higher burden areas of of radon like the basements or something. And then worldwide that 4 basically is times 37 so approximately 150 becquerel per meter squared in a lot of countries. But you kind of see uh, see some countries that recommend mitigating anywhere between that 150 to 400 becquerels per meter squared. And so once you do find out that your home or your building has dangerously high levels of radon or at least radon levels above the action limit that could increase the risk of lung cancer over time, you want to mitigate that radon. And by mitigation, I'm talking about simply getting rid of it. And there's several different methods and and these things work and so you should do it and, and for instance in my own home I did I did one of these mitigation me methods the sub slab depressurization and if you're interested sometimes these things can be hard to explain there are some great YouTube videos and other resources online that can maybe bring them to light a little bit but one of the most common things used is a sub slab depressurization system so essentially most houses uh, or a lot of houses will sit on a concrete slab oftentimes the the lowest one is in the basement and below that concrete slab you have gravel and so what you can do is you can drill a hole in that in that concrete slab and you can put a pipe into it and that pipe you can have go you know, you know, into that hole and then out of your house into above the roof level and, and that pipe is connected to a fan that essentially pumps the air out from under the house. And what that, that what that's doing is it's grabbing the radon underneath the house and sucking it up and blowing it outside before it has a chance to diffuse into the house. And that can be a very, very effective way to reduce the amount of radon in the home. Essentially just sticking a pipe underneath the ground below your slab and sucking air into it and then blowing it outside before it can diffuse into the home. Another way to improve or lower radon levels is just to improve air ventilation in the home. So if your house is recycling air more, it's going to be harder for those radon levels to build up and that can be a good way to lower radon levels as well. In crawl spaces, 
uh, a good thing to do is just to ventilate them. Like for instance, part of my house is on a crawl space and on each of the two outside walls of the crawl space there's just a vent. And that vent allows for air to flow underneath the crawl space from the outside. And it's very important to keep those vents open. Don't cover them with dirt or other material. Let them keep flowing so you can remove that air from underground out of the house. And if you want an additional layer of protection in a crawl space, you can put a high-density plastic sheet over the soil and then have a vent that's on the, the soil side of that crawl space. And that will essentially not only let the air vent underneath the crawl space, but it will also have a barrier that will prevent it from diffusing into your home. Um, some other things you can do is if you have a sump system in your basement, you can hook up one of those depressurization radon systems into that sump system because radon can tend to build up there and then uh, kind of get pumped into the house. Um, another thing you can do is basically just seal gaps and cracks in your house. You know, if your slab in your basement has a gigantic crack in it, just by sealing that up, it's going to prevent some radon from diffusing in. And so that can be an easy way and can help lower radon levels as well. And really, those are some of the main ways. There's other ways as well. But usually, if, to sum up how you mitigate radon or get rid of it in the home, you really kind of seal up the home so that air doesn't diffuse in. You improve the ventilation in the home so that more air is getting circulated outside and, and gases like radon aren't being allowed to build up. And then, and then finally, these, these um, depressurization systems which take air from underneath the house and pull it out and, and, and kind of shoot it outside before it has a chance to go in the house are really the ways that radon is mitigated. All right, that is radon. Just to recap this podcast a little bit, radon is a radioactive element. It tends to accumulate in our homes and buildings, and it is the largest contributor to an individual's background radiation dose and the leading environmental cause of cancer mortality worldwide. All of us should be testing for radon in our homes, and if the levels are above 150 becquerels per cubic meter or 4 picocuries per liter, we should be thinking about installing radon mitigation systems to lower the amount of radon in the home. Boo! Thank you so much for listening to the Full Scope Podcast and investing in your health. I'm Dr. Bill Randenberg. If you're enjoying the content, please rate, review, and share this content with all of your friends online and all your social media platforms. Please understand that this podcast is not intended to treat, diagnose, or cure your specific medical condition. This podcast does not create any type of doctor-patient relationship between myself, Dr. Brandenburg, and you, the listener. If you do need help with your life, with your health, with anything regarding your longevity or performance, please check out wondermedicine.com. Our longevity and performance program is the best in the world and is ready to help you right now today become the best possible individual you can be. Thanks. Bye-bye. Pew.